Welcome to the Undisciplined Podcast. This is your host, Nico Beitendach. And boy, do we have an episode today. I am speaking with David Kennedy of the Harvard Law School and Martikos Kanyemi, Professor Emeritus of Helsinki University and visiting professor at Harvard Law School. These two giants of international law need no introduction. They recently published a joint book entitled Of Law and the World, Critical Conversations on Power, History and Political Economy. The book takes the form of a dialogue between them where they meditate over some of the most timeless but also timely issues in international law. The book was released this year in 2023 by Harvard University Press, and it is highly recommended. Don't forget my own book on international law, States of Exclusion, a critical systems theory reading of international law, available for free and open access. Links to both of the books will be in the show description. The music is provided by a good friend of the show, Grada. That's enough from me. Let's get to my conversation with David and Marty. Thank you very much, Professor David Kennedy and Professor Marty Koskaniemi for joining me today. I'm very excited to have you on my show and to speak about your book that came out, your joint book that came out of Law and the World. And usually on the podcast, I ask people to give an academic autobiography, but I think that's not necessary for today. So at least I want to ask each of you to just give a short introduction of yourself. Sure. So I'm uh, David Kennedy. I, I'm an academic. Um, I've been teaching at Harvard for a very long time, about 40 years, some years, in the area of international law and international politics and regulation, um, with an interest in development and uh, an interest in global political matters. Thank you very much for having me. It's a delight. And I'm Marty Koskendevi. I'm um, Professor Emeritus at the University of Helsinki. I came to be an academic after a 20-year career in the foreign ministry. Um, and in the academy, I worked with public international law, but especially in the historical and theoretical aspects of it. But more or less everything in the, co in the field of international law. So I want to really speak about your co-authored book today and I think it's a unique work and therefore I want to ask perhaps you can start Marty on 
how this project, this joint project between you came to be? Well, uh, yes, it wasn't planned uh, very far in advance. It's a COVID project. So David and I keep often speaking on, on Zoom and in COVID, COVID or during COVID, especially intensely. And then at one point, David asked, well, what about recording these conversations and uh, making a transcript of them? And that's what we did. Uh, at first, we started conversations that were a, a little bit more uh, pre-elaborated, but then we noticed very rapidly that in order for a conversation to be conversational, it did go in, a, in uh, surprising directions and you couldn't really plan it too clearly in advance, which meant that once we had those transcripts, we had to work with those transcripts of the conversations quite a bit afterwards. Nevertheless, I would say that the, the written text is pretty uh, loyal to the actual conversations that took place during COVID, as I said, uh, uh, between ourselves. Yeah, no, I mean, I think we, um, so Marty and I have been talking about big themes in international affairs our whole career, and we thought, well, maybe we could do that um, together in the in this way for to make those conversations visible and readable. So themes like what is power in international affairs? What is political economy? We both worked on international legal history in different ways. And what did we think about history, debates in history at the moment? So each of the conversation takes up a, a, a large theme like that and we meander around. So the book doesn't make a argument from beginning to end the way lots of books do. It's more two people picking up topics we've both worked on and trying to speak about them in a very general way, and I hope informatively. It's interesting to me that you mention that the written text of the book didn't differ that much from the online conversations that you had. It reminds me, I think Gilles Deleuze, the French philosopher, said this, but I think many others have also said that thinking doesn't happen through conversation, it happens through writing. Did you find your thoughts changing when, when working with a text rather than having a conversation? Well, I don't know about you, David. Uh, I would say, well, it's natural that at least the, uh, the, the expression of ideas became more focused. Uh, but... I was surprised in the end how well the written text actually followed the, uh, the oral conversation. And although there were many stylistic glitches, obviously when one speaks that we had to remove, and there were some passages, not that many, a few passages in which we were repetitive, as one is in conversation. Um, I, I think it nevertheless, in this case, although I appreciate uh, what Deleuze has to say about the priority of writing to thinking. In this case, I was surprised that thinking, or at least speaking, did seem to have a priority in a very un-Derridean way to writing. I mean, I think I've, in my life, I have experienced having ideas in conversation quite often, actually, where I'm 
talking to somebody and suddenly I come up with a formulation or the other person does that I find quite telling and think about. But it's also true, it doesn't really make long sense until you try to write it down. Um, this was a, just an experiment. And I, like Marty, I thought it was um, really astonishing. We left all the paragraphs in the same order. So we didn't shift things around. Um, he worked on his paragraphs to make them feel comfortable. And I worked on my paragraphs to take out all the verbal stallers and you know and stuff like that. But we didn't find we had to restructure it. Now, people reading the book might think that was a mistake and we should have spent more time editing. But, but assuming that they don't, um, anyway, we felt it worked pretty well. I also wondered, you explained already that this started as conversations during COVID that you had and that the idea for the book, it sounds like it came only later. But nevertheless, I wonder, do you think that, you know, in, in, in law, as in many disciplines, the typical methodology for writing a, or publishing a book would be the, the single authorial voice. This book takes the shape of a dialogue in its methodology. Do you think that this method illuminates the law or an, any discipline for that matter, illuminates it in a different way, allows us to see it from another perspective? Well, so I, I, I was very struck by, there have been several books like this. We're not the first people to try this. And, um, and when I have worked with a book with two authors who were transcribing, in effect, uh, a dialogue, um, I found that I liked the bouncing back and forth between the two as they developed an idea. And it seemed to me often the one of the people was asking the other the question I, as a reader, would have wanted to ask. And so there was a way in which I thought the, uh, the ideas clarified uh, maybe more than they might have if the person had written it in, in a long form. And I also found have found with those texts that they taught quite well because they were short, relatively short statements of ideas or observations um, then challenged sometimes or developed by the other participant in the conversation. So there's something that communicates about that method. I'd never tried it before. Um, and... But but anyway, that was my feeling of why it might be worth doing, um, and I and I hope folks who pick up the book experience it that way. That we challenge each other a little bit, that we maybe say things more clearly than we might have if we'd had more pages, um, and that it that it teaches well. Well, I I agree with that. As we actually discuss in the book at a couple of points, neither one of us is a big method person. Not to say that we wouldn't be aware of various methodological projects and and conversations in law or in social sciences in general, but we don't usually approach our writing or our speaking, in this case, from a rigorously methodological perspective. Also, it helps that we've known each other for over 30 years and we've had these conversations uh, over and over again, uh, and so we just through ourselves into it. But what David says is quite true that both of us had read some conversations of this type. 
and had been impressed by the way in which things could be communicated in conversation in ways that might not be able to uh, to come across uh, in such a way if it were just a, a single authorial. Staying on the topic of of method for a second, it struck me, and I'm my question will be if this was a conscious decision or not. But typically, the method would be to let's say state the case and then offer critique. Now, this book the the first substantive chapter already starts with the topic of critique. And of course, both of you have made names as critical legal scholars. Is there a reason that you decided to start with the topic of critique from the beginning? Well, um, it wasn't easy to decide where to start. We had two alternatives. Either start with international law or start with critique. Uh, as the critique chapter itself, I think, uh, suggests powerfully, we came to, to the priority of critique because both of us think that there is something that starts outward in which one's work as international lawyer starts out. And our work starts out with a rejection of much of the conventional way of uh, dealing and discussing uh, international law, together with a sense that the world is a terribly unjust place and that international law in one way or another has been complicit in making it such. So in this sense, our work, or at least my work, st starts with a certain sensation, if you wish, a, a certain critical attitude, and it's only once that critical attitude uh, is there that you can uh, understand or that I can best present at least my work. So in this sense, critique is prior to the substance. But I think as Marty said, we were not, I mean, we were not saying, let us tell you about critical method first, and then we'll apply the method. I think one of the reasons for putting the chapter there was to stress how personal the question of critique is, that it arises as an impulse in a person, that it, that it arises by identifying what you're against, and then you look around for ways in which you might interrogate it or find intellectual resources that would be helpful in that endeavor. So I think we, in a, in a funny kind of way, we put the method chapter first in order to not have method first, if you can think of it in that way. Um, to try to take the method question, in effect, off the table um, by trying to focus also the reader's attention on what the reader finds unjust, what the reader's motive for engaging in intellectual work is, and what intellectual resources are lying around which are familiar to the reader, maybe not to us, but would be useful uh, in, an, in an endeavor to try to come at a field with the intention of exposing it, improving it, reshaping it in some way. Maybe also to, uh, to convey the sense that we share, that, uh, that if one has a feeling that the world is an unjust place, or that things in global governance, say, are not going the way they should, that, that's fine. 
and that if you start with that intuition, that's fine. Um, and that's a different idea about critique and method than if you start in a very theoretical, methodological perspective in which sometimes, at least I feel, sometimes it tends to become uh, the, the, the perpetuated, so the methodological debate becomes too long and forgets that in front of that debate is, or at least in my way, should be a sense about what do you think about the world? And then that gets it going. That's extremely interesting to me because what I really liked about that chapter was that it included so much of your personal and autobiographical experiences. And it starts with both of you entering law school in a sense, or that's what I read from it. And Mark, do you say you start with a, a critical style towards the world or international politics, etc. But it seems to me, and I might be completely wrong, but and and maybe I'm projecting my own experience onto both of you. But it seems to me that it starts with this critical posture towards the world. One enters legal studies and that that and I, I think it's perhaps from a sense of disappointment, and that's a little bit what I read in the book from both of you, that that critical stance then becomes directed to to law and legal institutions themselves. Is that an accurate description of of your experience or not? First, you say that the critique starts with legal, uh, that the, the work starts with critical style. I would say the work starts with critical impulse to the world. Um, and so it's, it's a, a, a sentiment, it's an unanalyzed, it may be an outrage about something. You read the news and you think, how on earth can this, be, uh, can this go so wrong? And as I said, I think it, people should feel that it's okay to feel that way. Now, there's a way in which international law, standard international law, does accept that this is an acceptable position from which to start, but somehow engaging in standard ways of, the, of doing international law then uh, does away with that initial sentiment and suggests that, well, we do have laws of war, well, we do have the United Nations, well, we do have the World Trade Organization, and that they deal with these problems, you know, in a more or less professional way. Of course, problems remain in the in the margins, but etc. So, the, entering the field of law then uh, try, dilutes that original sentiment, and at least for me, but I think David as well, it's really important to keep that original impulse, that original sentiment alive which means you would not be seduced by the promises of legal institutions, which often are quite hollow, and that the, the critical work operates, at, and, and I suppose it requires some self-discipline and, and introspection to see to it that this impulse remains there, whilst one then does the professional work that's offered to uh, one in international law. I mean, I think we started with the, I mean, I completely agree with that. I, I think we started with 
ourselves as, you know, law students coming into the legal academy with an impulse to try to figure out what was wrong with the world and found that the answers in the academy were disappointing. So I think you're right there, we go. But um, I think we started there also, you know, why would people today be interested in what two old guys were doing when they went to law school many, many years ago? I think partly it was to, to give the impression that everybody starts like that. That people don't start with a whole heavy methodological um, bunch of baggage and then try to figure out how to apply it. And it was in a way, hopefully making it visible that a path into developing your intellectual agenda and your political agenda in thinking um, was something that people had to do in their own space out of their own outrages. And then we tried to say something about the intellectual resources that were there because nobody starts in the beginning. There are these long traditions of critical thinking that have provided resources. And we try in the book to say what some of those are. In what ways can a study of history help to inform your understanding of what's wrong? And in what ways can a study of history get in the way? How is it that we could think about power not as something that really important people have and deploy, but power that's something that's imminent and ongoing in social relations and legal institutions all the time, so that the power that keeps things unjust might be something we'd find in quite quotidian locations, things like that. So those are not fancy ideas. They're, rel they're ideas that have been developed um, by lots of different people in subtly different ways. And, and we tried to make them as, as kind of accessible as possible to say, you know, you're not alone if you have a critical impulse and you want to do something with it. And you're not starting from the beginning. There are people who've tried it um, and who can help you figure out where to begin. No, well, firstly, David, I think you, you say, why would anyone want to listen to two old fogies? I don't think that's the case at all. Um, I've, like I mentioned, I think the both of your experiences, as you describe it in the book, resonated a lot with with me. However, and I, I just want to be a bit controversial just for the sake of conversation. You please do. You speak in the book, and we've spoken now about Marty says the the critical impulse or the critical stance or critical style. And he also, as we know, in, in his book, The Gentle Civilizer of Nations, he speaks of the professional sensibility among these kind of classic international lawyers. So I want to pose to you the question, given the, the kind of proliferation of critical legal work, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to not only speak about CLS here, but more generally. Sure. There's an argument to be made that the critical style is perhaps the, the, the professional sensibility that Marty speaks of for, for today. And that there's a sense that that is, that's the talk that we're doing, but nevertheless, the machine keeps rolling. 
Nicole, I think you're right that criticism of one sort or another has become very common and has always been common in the, in the international legal and institutional world. You could think of international law itself as arising out of a critical impulse that the world needs to be reformed in some way, civilized, legalized, um, brought together in some kind of order. Uh, and so it takes some thinking to figure out how one might get behind that normal practice and understand how those routines of reform themselves help to sustain an unjust world. So the critical inquiry that I think both Marty and I have been engaged in is to try to say it's true that the international legal world combines a kind of savvy, realistic approach to things with a utopian vision that things need to be reformed and need to be criticized and need to be improved. Um, and that that back and forth between those two voices or styles, unfortunately, is part of how the world's injustice is reproduced and stabilized. So the, the critical impulse requires a kind of critique of critique, if they can say that, or sort of or at least getting on the outside of what's become a relatively conventional way of thinking, if I just keep reforming and improving the order, eventually we'll get to the place where the world is just. Um, and, and for various reasons, I think we felt that's inadequate. Well, in The Gentle Civilizer, I used the notion of professional sensibility to give a broad characterization of an atmosphere of legal professionalism that I came to know during my 20 years in the foreign ministry when I went to the UN General Assembly, for instance. Uh, and I met colleagues, so there was, a, there was a special way in which the international lawyers looked at the institution itself, the UN, uh, global problems, how they viewed their own role in dealing with those global problems what the rules and treaties and customs and institutions had to do. So I had come to know this and because one isn't just a person who lives in a profession, but, but in the world in general, there was something very specific about that. I, don't, I didn't want to, think, to, to characterize this as a culture. Culture in many ways is an overused uh, uh, concept. I wanted to have this broad characterization and see, well, where does it come from and how has it developed? And it had many strange aspects to it. How can it still keep thinking that, as you said, it somehow has a very critical role in the world when it seems to be complicit in everything that goes on in the world? How is it that the uh, the student, when they came to international law and take up the profession, how is it then that they are socialized in this sensibility? That on the one hand, especially at the surface, does have a, a critical project in the world, but on the other hand, insists on its realism, on its ability to be part of diplomacy and deal with diplomats on, diplom on diplomatic terms without posing any uh, wide challenges to <coughs> existing practices or institutions. It had various specific features, this sensibility. 
and the gentle civilizer is an effort to trace uh, the elements of that sensibility in the course of time when something like a profession of international law has existed and has been prevalent in international institutions and in legal practices. This is interesting because it a part of what I hear in this is is a, a worldview that is shared by a community who associate themselves uh, with each other. And it was very interesting for me, David, that in the book you mentioned one of the texts that you read as a student that had influence on you that we don't often hear in in, in law was uh, Thomas Kuhn's uh, Structure of Scientific Revolutions. And that's funny because it's, for me particularly, that's something I'm quite interested in at the moment in my own work. And although he explicitly said his theory should not be applied to social science, and he says this especially not law, I cannot help but get the feeling also from your conversations in the book that there is, in the first place, a, a professional community that shares a certain worldview and that this then becomes inadequate in a way and gets changed. Do you think that, and I know I'm, I'm, I'm asking you about something that you said was decades ago that was interesting to you, but do you think that despite Kuhn's misgivings, there's something to be said for, for these changing attitudes and changing worldviews within the international legal community? Can we apply that Nevertheless, is, is international law going through different phases of itself? So uh, let me say Kuhn was, a, was in fact quite influential, but I don't think of these guys who are influential as proposing theories that should be applied and that we'd even ask them whether it was appropriate to apply their theory here or there. I see them, you read somebody like that, and it gives you an idea, and you think, oh, wow, I wonder if exactly like you said, Nico, maybe in my field, people have a shared sensibility that leads them to ask some questions, but not other questions. Maybe those things change not slowly, but in dramatic moments. So let's say it works completely differently in science. I don't know anything about science, but it gave me that, I, that thought, let me look for that. Let me see whether or not how people within the field think about something does shape the way in which they figure out what problems are worth addressing and what solutions might work. And then let me go back a little bit historically and see, have there been ruptures in that framing? And once you think, well, yeah, actually, here's another time in which they frame things completely differently. The first thing that suggests, it's quite reassuring because it means that could happen again. It's possible again that the foundations could shift in a productive way and the things that we think now aren't solvable might suddenly seem to yield to new things we could discover and so forth. So there's something very optimistic uh, without adopting a particular idea that we're making progress. It's, it, it's simply 
opens the door to exploring the ways in which a shared understanding can both um, make the field possible, but also limit the terrain that it can really handle and opens the idea that it might change. So um, I, I, I don't see it as any more than that. And if, if, we, if we had Mr. Kuhn right here and he said, uh, I'm sorry, that isn't true in law, I would say, well, actually, I've just been looking into <laughs> it and it turns out it is. Yes, I completely, again, ag agree with that. Let me say that intellectual ideas such as the structure of scientific revolutions I don't believe in applying those ideas as such. The very metaphor of application, I think, is just wrong. So it had it had intelligent and, yeah, and influential ideas. It had a, it had a meaningful insight that one then analogously, uh, analogously can see illuminate some aspect of one's own work and. Not that I take this theory and I apply it. It's just that having read Kuhn and the structure of scientific revolutions with anomalies and revolutions thereafter, yeah, there is something like that, although it's not exactly like that, and that broadens one's own ability to analyze. But let me also say about the professional sensibility, as comes out very clearly in this book, that it's not one thing, and it's not a very tightly woven thing. In the first place, there is always a, a kind of a center in the profession, a group of people to whom aspiring professionals look up to and want to imitate. And then there, then there are the margins, and there are the, a sensibility always has its own uh, self-critique too. So there are in the margins, there are people who think otherwise than those in the center, and there's this constant dialogue and so on. So that's one thing, center and Sense. Another thing is that uh, that in this book we employ a lot the contrast or the parallels between the United States and Europe, and our experience as having come to the profession from these two different continents is somewhat different. It's also somewhat similar, but there are differences. And because, as we lay out quite clearly in the first chapter, I think critique and professional work is indebted to the context in which it emerges, the people that one meets, that one, well, that one associates with at the university and then early on at the, at, uh, uh, the, the, in my case, the foreign ministry or yeah, in David's case, the, the academy. Then that, all of that makes, uh, gives different variants. Now, there might be a debate about whether a certain American style that uh, we discuss at the, towards the end of the book is still part of the same sensibility of my, uh, as my Victorians from 1873. So that's a topic of discussion. There are many, many differences there. But I think I'm, I'm not that important in drawing sharp lights in those, those situations. The world has a lot of gray between the black and the white and we try to move in that world of gray mapping things that we see along the way as we carry out this, this, our professional assignments. That's interesting. So I want to ask, and I'm, you, you said you reject the metaphor of application. So perhaps you, you reject the 
entire premise of my next question. But also speaking of, you said there's this kind of the the Europe something like a European phase, or if I may, the the European paradigm, which became to a larger or smaller degree replaced by an, an American paradigm. Where in the cycle of paradigm shifts? Do you think international law is at right now, or are we still firmly in 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 the post World War II American paradigm? Again, as far as I'm concerned, the the word paradigm presupposes things that at least I don't quite believe in. So it's a more mushy and confused terrain there, and people move uh, in this terrain in different directions. I had a suspicion you were not going to accept my premise. Well, no, I accept some part of the premise. and But, but one wants in speaking to avoid the kinds of, um, of uh, assumptions other people when listening might make about uh, the intellectual background on the basis of which one speaks. The, uh, I, uh, so I, the Second World War is not a sharp uh, break. These things develop slowly into each other. And as, as David uh, has several times no, uh, noted, the legal practices and the sensibility around the European Union and among European lawyers in Brussels is pretty familiar to an American lawyer. And it's a very different practice from the public international lawyers of the interwar, for example. So that would be, one would notice there a kind of confusion of sensibilities or merging of sensibilities into each other in order to understand the practices in law, school, in, in, uh, law offices in Brussels in comparison to what went on in the foreign ministries in places like London or Paris in the interwar era. I think one of the puzzles we struggled with in the book and talked about a fair amount is what to make of the claim that a mode of legality becomes dominant in the world. So what is a mode of legality? Is it a set of institutions, a set of professional practices? Is it embedded in professional sensibilities? Is it a set of ideas? So what, what, is it a style? So what do we call it if we don't call it a paradigm? It's all those things. It's embedded in actual people in some way. Um, and so such a thing for all of its uncertainty and plurality and internal differences, you can say there's a style, let's call it, or a sensibility of, of legal work that does become dominant for many aspects of global interaction in a given period. And you can say, well, it had something, it arose in a given way and it just connected up with some, let's say, national tradition or continental tradition. And maybe we could say it was European and now it's American, but it's a very, um, it, it would take a lot of kind of unpacking to try to understand what that really means. So what, what is the vehicle by which the American style, if we want to call it that, globalizes um, through educational systems, through modes of 
commercial practice, through the documentation required to access international financial institutions, through military activities in all kinds of different ways um, that a given style could, for many different kinds of elites, become common, a common vernacular. I think it's a whole separate question whether that's, let's say, good for America or good for Europe. So um, I think it's very easy to, to imagine there was in the European when the European legal style was dominant, it, there was also there were also many practices that we now call colonialism, and many practices that we now call capitalism. Uh, and so, it, what was its relationship to those things? Were they instrumental to it? Was it instrumental to them? Those are the kinds of questions we puzzle over in the book. And I think one of the one of the big conclusions that we've drawn is that for both the European ascendancy and the American ascendancy, if we can think of it that way, those questions don't have easy answers. And so we're both, I think, hesitant about uh, many forms of critical work that have tried to draw two simple links between, let's say, the interests of the United States, the modes of American legality in, in the moment of American, well, let's call it hegemony or empire in some way. Um, and we, we want to try to open those things up to interrogation and, and, and try to think through how uncertain they are, how you can have an imperial hegemonic practice that's not very unidirectional, that's not very uniform, um, and that's very unclear in its relationship to what we might call ideological or, or material interests of particular groups. Yeah, that, that's, I think, a, a fascinating point. Even what you're saying, the difference between, for example, European legality that now we call colonialism or recognize as colonialism, it reminds me of, you know, what what Niklas Luhmann calls old European semantics and the shift of semantics, and also reminds me of you know Reinhard Koselleck and conceptual history, Begriffsgeschichte, in that sense of the change of meaning of concepts and how that changes. But but wait a second, society and social structure. But let me interrupt you, Nico. Yes, that, I wanted to say something slightly different. I didn't mean that the mode of European legality that we now recognize as colonialism, which is what I understood you to be saying. I wanted to say we explored, and I think Marty Farwell than I obviously, explored a, a, a style of legality that was characteristic of some Europeans rooted in some European domestic practices that turned out to have a global dimension. And that arose at the same time that other things were going on, which we now say were colonial. And the relationship between that legal style and those lawyers and those military, political, economic, and many other cultural practices that we unify under the word colonialism, even though they were very different practices and it was across an entire world and one could explore it in its or reorganization of the world's productive capacities and agricultural terrain, as much as one could explore it around patterns of military practice and intervention. 
those are all very different. They have very different stories. Um, and so we wanted to take the legal story aside, explore its specificity, and then simply ask the question, in, in what ways was the way lawyers imagined things a, a window into the way other members of the elite were imagining the colonial world? So maybe it helps us understand those other people who were doing colonialism. Maybe some of the people who were doing some colonial practices found some of the ideas that lawyers came up with useful. Uh, there certainly were, it was, certainly was true that all those colonial arrangements were also legal institutions. And a lot of them were constructed in ways that participated in similar modes of professional practice. But those are all special, different things to look at. So the, the way in which a, somebody writing a book about international law in London is now thought to have legitimated colonialism is really different than the way the British set up a particular form of indirect governance in Burma and what forms of legality were useful there. They have, there's no reason to think they had anything to do with each other necessarily. So, so I want to try to get us away from this idea that we can now look back and say there was this thing called colonialism, which had a unity and a direction and a malevolence that was somehow encoded in all of its forms equally, and that they were all somehow necessary and productive towards it. It just isn't like that in history. I'm really grateful for David for that, uh, that super clear <laughs> explanation of something that I think we've both thought yeah, for a long time. So for me, large words such as colonialism, imperialism, capitalism, etc., although polemically not only useful but often necessary, uh, analytically speaking, are often obstacles to thinking. And you throw in a word like that, a word like that, and you think that you've explained something or that you've gained some insight. Now, at the end of the day, you might characterize large, large periods by reference to such words. But when you do your historical work or your analytical legal work and try to understand, then you have to penetrate through those words and try to find out actual human beings who are engaged in actual projects and then only at the end of, the, uh, of your study uh, conclude what relationship might they have, if any, to those large words with which we today understand the world. Yeah, thank you. I, I think I just experienced the 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 thinking through dialogue or trialogue myself now that you <laughs> have been practicing in in writing this book. So, thank you very much. I think we're getting towards the end of our time. So, and I always feel really guilty asking this question of people who who had just delivered. A work, but just as a as a final question, I want to know what each of you are working on in, in terms of projects that we might be able to see in the future on books or, or, or something like that. So for me, it's reasonably uh, easy to, uh, to to say what I'm going to do. So this is work that's based on my prior work. I want to understand. Where did the idea of the social go in international law? There was a moment in the 19th century when it was a big topic and people spoke about the international realm in terms of 
a large society in which, inside which smaller so, social relations were formed, but that then didn't become part of public international law or in, in international law as we know it. Um, I'm interested in the emergence of sociology and social thinking in some different place. And again, uh, this is an intellectual interest, but it is underwritten by a critical sensibility that that the absence of those vocabularies and those ideas today seems to be is part of the problems that we experience now. Well, so I'm working on a book that aims to explore the mindset obstacles to thinking productively about large contemporary policy problems within the social scientific community that purports to talk about them all the time. So I'm taking the, the issue of, of hierarchies and inequalities and the issue of global warming and trying to understand why for all the work that's been put into them, are there some limitations on the kinds of diagnoses and solutions that are thought through that arise from the collective sensibilities of the people who are engaging in that work. So it's kind of an exploration of the, okay, let's call it paradigm, just because you made us use the word, Nico, um, with which social scientists in uh, particularly the United States are thinking about some of the most important uh, policy problems that we confront. It's been a pleasure talking. Thank you for bringing us into the conversation, Nico. Indeed. Thank you, Nico. I I've enjoyed this. No, thank you to the both of you. And I look forward to both of your works in the future. And thank you very much for joining me.